0: Coming up on the Keto Camp podcast, we welcome Ari Witten.
1: When we look at healthy 70 year olds who are lifelong athletes and exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as young adults. They don't lose 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. So that's how we know that this is a process akin to muscle atrophy from wearing a cast. It is exactly as you said, use it or lose it. And the modern anti-hormetic or non-hormetic lifestyle causes us to literally lose our mitochondria. They shrink, they shrivel, they atrophy, and they literally die off. We have much fewer of them.
0: I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, thank you so much for pressing play today. I have a fun conversation with Ari Witten, who has a book titled Eat for Energy, How to Beat Fatigue supercharge your mitochondria, and unlock all-day energy. When it comes to you feeling good and living a long, healthy life, it's all about those energy factories called the mitochondria. But hey, guess what? They're much more than mindless energy producers. They actually have an intelligence. We're going to get into that. This conversation is one of my favorite ones because I just love geeking out on the mitochondria. You'll hear his backstory of getting sick and having chronic fatigue, and what he did to overcome that, and why he became obsessed with studying chronic fatigue. We get into the key for overcoming fatigue is growing more robust mitochondria, creating more mitogenesis. And the way he explains the mitochondria is very different and brilliant from probably what you've heard before. We talk about hormetic stressors creating more robust mitochondria, We've, talked, we've spoken about hormesis before. He'll break it down even further. Then we get into the research of Dr. Robert Navio, who talks about peacetime metabolism versus wartime metabolism. This is where his book and his research really comes into a new paradigm shift when it comes to the mitochondria and how the mitochondria are much more than energy producers and factories. They actually have an intelligence And they are surveillance systems. And if the mitochondria has taken surveillance and sees that you're under a lot of stress, which is that wartime metabolism, then it will produce less energy, leading to chronic fatigue, brain issues, and a whole host of issues. But what if we could identify those stressors, work on removing it, and now the mitochondria have determined that this is a peacetime metabolism. Let's produce energy. Let's feel good. That's the goal. And that's what we're going to talk about. we we'll get into his book. He calls melatonin, R.E. calls melatonin, the most powerful antioxidant for the mitochondria in the world. And we get into some of the misconceptions around melatonin. And some people are actually sensitive to melatonin. And we talk about why that might be. He developed some products as well, which we'll get into. You're gonna really love this conversation all about the mighty mitochondria. So if you're a nerd like me, put your nerd cap on, take a lot of notes, be present. You're gonna love this. And then go get his book after the conversation. Before I bring him on, I wanna take a minute to get to the Apple Podcast rating review of the day. This five-star review comes from Moki. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yep, that is the username. <laughs> titled, So Informative, probably one of my favorite podcasts. I just keep learning new things every day. I highly recommend this show to all who are interested in a keto and intermittent fasting lifestyle. Thank you, Moki. I really appreciate that. I'm glad we're one of your favorites. Appreciate you listening and taking the time to leave that rating and review. It really helps. So if you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast, a rating or review yet, please do so right now. It helps the show grow and reach more lives. It's the lifeline for podcast, There is a science to keto, and there's a lot of science to the benefits of a ketogenic lifestyle and what ketones do to raise your basal metabolic rate, lower insulin, lower glucose, lower inflammation, how ketones help to produce more mitochondria, which creates more ATP and energy. There is a science, but there's also an art to keto. My job, my responsibility, and my duty is to bridge the gap between the science and art of keto. The science is clear. This is what the science shows. However, we are unique as human beings, where we have a unique health history, we have unique goals, we have different lifestyles and genetics that also play a role. So that's where the art comes into play. And I wanna teach you the science and the art of keto. So I decided to put together a free live training where I'm going to tie it all together and outline the four secrets to keto so you could understand the science, but also the art so you could apply it for amazing results. I want to make you the artist. This is a free training taking place on August 25th, which is Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific. It is a live training. It is not a replay. I will be on there teaching you for those who join. Now here's the thing, we only have room for a certain amount of people who could join this live training. This capacity is going to be reached by the time we start the training, so hopefully you're hearing this on time, and you go to ketosismasterclass.com, that is ketosismasterclass.com, and register your free spot. Join me, we'll have a 24-hour replay available, so we bridge the gap between the science and the art of keto. Make sure you grab a pen and paper, take a lot of notes. This is going to be unlike anything you've attended before. It is a brand new training, and I'm excited to reveal it to you. We'll drop a link for that in the notes down below of this podcast. All right, let's talk about the mitochondria with Ari Witten. Ari Witten is the founder of the Energy Blueprints. is an energy and fatigue specialist who focuses on taking an evidence-based approach to energy enhancement, nutrition, exercise, and a natural health expert and a number one best-selling author. He's been studying nutrition and holistic health for over two decades. He has a bachelor of science from San Diego State University in kinesiology. He also has a background in exercise physiology and fitness and holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist. In addition, He recently completed the three years of coursework for his PhD in clinical psychology and education, which rounds out all aspects of nutrition, fitness, and psychology of his approach to optimal health. He is tirelessly researching nutrition and has been doing so for the last 20 years. And We are blessed to get that synergized and synthesized into this amazing conversation, which is focused around his new book, Eat for Energy. Here's Ari Witten. Ari Witten, welcome to the Keto
1: Camp podcast, brother. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Always great to connect with you.
0: I've been a fan of your work for several years. Uh, just love the work that you do and how you look way beyond the superficial stuff, and you find root cause fixes. So you have a new book called "Eat for Energy: How to Beat Fatigue, How to Beat Fatigue, Supercharge Your Mitochondria, and Unlock." all day energy. I think we all want that. Uh, We're going to dive deep into your book and have a new understanding of what the mitochondria actually do in the body. Before we do, I mean, you have such a pain to purpose to promise story of getting sick, chronic fatigue, and this happened in your early 20s. So let's go back there. What were the things you were dealing with and how did you overcome it?
1: Yeah, well, the the very short version. You know, I've really been studying health science my whole life since I was a kid, since I was 12, 13 years old. This has been my sort of singular passion and obsession in life. And I was always an athlete, I was always fit. I was into bodybuilding when I was young, and so, you know, nutrition and and fitness was my world. And in my mid-20s, something happened that kind of rocked my world a bit and and shifted things in a big way for me. And that was that I got re- very sick with uh, Epstein-Barr virus and I got mononucleosis, sometimes called glandular fever or um, the kissing disease, depending on which country you're in. And at the time, I was living in Israel and I was uh, on a, working on a communal farm and I was with a group of like 100 other kids from all around the world who were in their, their 20s. And it was kind of a party scene, and I was in a, a room with two other guys. You know, one room with with three guys living in it, and uh, you know, it was infested with mold. And sleep was very disturbed. You know, going to bed at you know one in the morning, waking up at five in the morning to start work, and I ended up getting Epstein Barr virus, and I got very sick from it. And I lost about I think thirty or thirty five pounds in the span of a month uh, because I could I couldn't eat my the back of my throat was so swollen with these my tonsils were just filled with pus the whole back of my throat was white and just unbelievably painful to just consume food and swallow so I was living off broth for weeks and se- severely fatigued and debilitated from it and. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things I could tell you about what happened there. Like, they initially thought maybe it's strep throat. They pre- prescribed me pell- penicillin. I took that for ten days. Didn't do anything. Then uh, ultimately, only like six weeks later, did the diagnosis of Epstein-Barr virus actually come in, and my titers for Epstein-Barr virus were were off the charts. And I kind of recovered enough to be somewhat functional, but I was left with pretty pretty severe chronic fatigue. For almost a year after that. And this really was a catalyst for me that, that shifted things. Before I was very focused on fitness and body composition, you know, fat loss and muscle gain. That was my world for many years. And this really shifted things for me because this thing that I had taken for granted my whole life, energy, was taken away from me. And I saw how much your life shifts as a result of that everything in your life kind of goes down the crapper when your energy goes down the crapper your relationships your you know i had a relationship with my girlfriend my relationships with friends my ability to go perform work my ability to do school and and do the studying that i was doing at the time everything suffered my whole life was kind of you know, became a shell of what it was before because I just didn't have that, that the mental and physical energy to do all of the things that that I used to be able to do. And that was a big frame shift for me that changed my focus from the world of fitness and body composition optimization to the world of, of energy optimization. And I started becoming really obsessed with energy And what is the science of energy? And then I started, you know, I went to conventional medical doctors to deal with my chronic fatigue problems, who without pretty much universally had nothing whatsoever to offer me. And then I would see, you know, people in the alternative medicine world, natural health and functional medicine realms, which is what I was more aligned with and still am more aligned with. And everybody in that space was talking about adrenal fatigue adrenal fatigue this, adrenal fatigue that. And, you know, we could talk about that subject for an hour or two. (laughs) I've I've done several hours of lecture just on that one topic. But basically, the, the, the very short version of it is I was totally convinced that I had this thing called adrenal fatigue. And then I started to get really annoyed with the fact that within conventional medicine, they were brushing off this whole thing of adrenal fatigue as pseudoscience and as nonsense. And I was really irked by that. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to you know stick it to you guys and prove to you that adrenal fatigue really is a real thing. And I'm going to write a book on it, you know, talking about the scientific evidence to support the adrenal fatigue hypothesis. And I spent... I spent actually about a year of my life on this one thing, just doing nothing else but digging into all the research around adrenal function, cortisol levels, HPA axis function more broadly, and the relationship of that to fatigue. And basically what I found, to summarize in a sentence or two, uh, a year of my life, what I found was that the science actually does not support the idea that adrenal fatigue is a major cause of people's chronic fatigue. And so my my beliefs and my hypothesis was basically falsified by the data. But then something interesting happened. I realized that nobody in conventional medicine and almost nobody in the natural health functional medicine space actually truly understands what the hell is causing fatigue. And that was an opportunity for me to explore and for me to be the sort of the main person who builds out our scientific understanding of what are the real factors that are controlling and regulating human energy levels why do people get chronically fatigued and how do we fix that how do we optimize our energy levels or how do we go from normal healthy people you know sort of typical function to a superhuman level of energy so that's really what i've been devoting my life to for the last decade
0: Yeah, and you have been doing a great job educating a lot of people on that, and your new book's going to change a lot of lives. You said something very important. You said when you were going through those health challenges, the chronic fatigue, pretty much every area in your life suffered, your relationships, your work, yourself. And, And that's so important to understand because if you don't have your health and your energy nothing really matters. Everything is going to go downhill. But if you focus on your health and energy and follow the protocols that Ari outlines in his new book, everything will upgrade. Your relation, you'll have better relationships. I mean, I'm I'm all for being financially independent and, and making some income. But what's that worth? If you go on a month trip with your family, all paid vacation, but you're tired all the time, you got to take a nap, you're, you're hurting all the time, it's not worth it. But if you focus on your health and energy, which you're going to share how to do that, Everything else will upgrade by default. So I love the paradigm shift here that you teach. Very important for entrepreneurs who think sacrificing health is the way to scale a business, but it's actually the other way around. Would you agree with that?
1: One hundred percent.
0: So let's talk about the mitochondria. Somebody thinks, okay, I went to. Bi- I remember my biology class. The mitochondria produce energy. It produces ATP. Shouldn't I just find ways to create more mitochondria or strengthen my mitochondria? Is it as easy as that, Ari?
1: Um. Well, <laughs> finding ways to, to grow more mitochondria and strengthen your mitochondria is actually a huge key to the puzzle of overcoming fatigue. But is it easy? Is it easy to do that? It's, it's a process to learn. There's a process of knowledge that has to be acquired and a set of skill sets. Um, so it's like saying, well, is it easy to learn to meditate? Is it easy to learn to exercise? They're, they're things that take time to, to get good at and you have to put in some effort. So I don't know if it's easy or not is, is one question. But going back to what you were saying a second ago, is it the right thing to do? Yes. Is it important, critically important for you, for your quality of life and your health span and your lifespan to do those things? Yes, absolutely. But going from the, the you know, if you're talking about the typical standard American what their diet and lifestyle looks like to going to what i'm recommending you know there's a transition that has to be crossed there a set of skills a, set, a you know a body of knowledge that has to be acquired and a, a set of skills and behaviors that have to be implemented in your life but to answer your question more broadly one of the big things that that i think is critically important to understand is and that i discovered in the process of realizing that the adrenal fatigue hypothesis wasn't really accurate, was I went, well, if it's not the adrenals and it's not cortisol, what the heck is regulating human energy levels? And what I have discovered in that process is that the mitochondria are really central to that story. Mitochondria, as you said, we're all taught in biology courses in high school and college. These are the the powerhouse of the cell. This is where our cells produce most of their energy in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that's cellular energy. And in those courses, we're kind of taught to think of mitochondria as these mindless energy generators that sort of just take in carbs and fats and pump out ATP. And of course, it's true, they are energy generators. But in the last five or 10 years, there's been an enormous discovery around this that's, that's critically important to understand. And that is that mitochondria have a second role beyond energy production that is just as important as their role in energy production. And that is their role in energy regulation. Okay, So there's a difference between something that is responsible for producing energy and something that is actually controlling how much energy will be produced. So it's one thing to have an engine in your car. And it's another thing to have a person sitting in that car who is turning that engine on and pressing the accelerator pedal, right? There there are two different aspects of this story. One is the machinery for producing the energy and one is the thing that's actually controlling how much get energy gets produced.
0: Which is the kind of like the intelligence, it's this, the person driving behind the wheel, it's the intelligence of the cell. Exactly,
1: so it turns out that, I, I, li- I like that word because it's, a, it's appropriate to describe mitochondria as having some intelligence because they, they are the thing inside the body that is sort of the most upstream thing in the body most upstream system of the body that is deciding whether or not to produce energy, how much energy should we produce at this moment. And it turns out that mitochondria actually have this second role beyond energy producers as environmental sensors. They are constantly sampling their environment, taking samples of what's going on in the cell and around the cell, and based on that, they are deciding how much energy they should produce. So mitochondria can either shift into energy mode or what uh, Dr. Robert Naviot calls peacetime metabolism, or they can shift into more of a wartime metabolism or defense mode. And this is built on the guy I just mentioned. His name is Dr. Robert Navio. He runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And he made a really huge discovery about maybe close to 10 years ago, which he wrote about in a paper called The Cell Danger Response. And basically, this is outlining what I was just describing. He's the primary scientist who has discovered that mitochondria have this role as environmental sensors, sort of the canaries in the coal mine. They're taking these samples of what's going on in and around the cell and determining, they're basically asking the question, are we under attack right now? Is there a threat? Is there a danger present in the body? And in response to the presence or absence of that danger, they'll either shift more into energy mode or defense mode. So it's, a, it's critical to understand that these are two sides of the same coin. So your energy levels are a function of the degree to which your mitochondria are basically saying either we're safe, let's produce energy, or we're under attack, let's turn down energy production and shift resources towards defense mode. So your energy levels are a function of the degree to which your mitochondria are either in energy mode or defense mode. And and that's the the big key to understand. It's also critical to understand that mitochondria can pick up on essentially every type of stressor or threat imaginable from poor diet to sleep deprivation to disrupted circadian rhythm to psychological stress to poor gut health. To um, blood sugar dysregulation, to environmental toxicants, and anything else you can think of, and the reason why they can pick up on you know all these different kinds of stressors is because almost every type of stressor to the body can be reduced down basically to either oxidative stress and oxidative damage, or inflammation, elevated levels of inflammatory cytokines, or cellular damage. So. Almost every type of stressor imaginable is going to result in one or more of those two mechanisms. And the mitochondria are exquisitely sensitive to those things. They pick up on those biochemical signals of threat or danger or stress that's present in the body. And in response to that, they're turning down the dial on energy production. So if I can now step out of that just slightly... So the big picture of what is controlling your energy levels are two fundamental things. Okay, one is the amount of stressors that you have in your life that your mitochondria are picking up on and and saying, "Oh, we're under attack, we're under stress, let's turn down the dial on energy production." And to kind of go back to part of your, the way you phrase this question initially, The other key aspect is you, you, your cells and your mitochondria. And what I mean by that is we know that in our youth, we have lots of mitochondria that are very big, very robust. Okay, And as as we get older, from the time we're 20 to the time we're 70, most people lose about 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. 75% the difference between a 20-year-old And a 70 year old. And here's the important part we know that that is not just a normal process of aging. Okay. It's actually the result of lack of hormetic stress, it's the result of lack of challenging and stimulating your mitochondria. Well, so let's stop right there because. Uh, We've spoken
0: about hormetic stressors before, but there's probably somebody listening or watching. They're like, what is that? Ari just said stress, too much stress is causing the mitochondria to go in this wartime mode, which leads to less energy being produced, which is problematic. But the problem with people who lose mitochondria is because of lack of hormetic stress. So how does that make sense?
1: Okay, so hormetic stress is basically the concept of how a transient metabolic stressor actually works to stimulate beneficial adaptations that ultimately confer increased resistance and resilience in the face of a broad range of other stressors, okay? In other words, the famous Nietzsche quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. By exposing yourself to moderate stressors that are within your body's capacity, within or just beyond your body's capacity to handle, you actually make your body at the cellular level stronger and more resistant to a broad range of other stressors. Now, you can think of this in terms of If, well, actually, let me just state explicitly many different types of of hormetic stress, and then I'll go to this other piece. Some of the the classic hormetic stressors are exercise. Okay. And there are many subtypes of exercise from endurance, steady state endurance exercise or cardio to high intensity interval training to sprint interval training to uh, resistance exercise. There's breath hold practices, intermittent hypoxic training. There's fasting. Uh, which obviously you talk a lot about there and nutrient cycling, Okay, intermittent glycogen depletion is another type of hormesis, heat exposure, cold exposure, uh, xenohormesis from phytochemicals. There's many different types of hormetic stress, even certain types of light act as hormetic stressors, ultraviolet light and red and near infrared light, which is a topic I've written a book on. And these hormetic stressors are vital for challenging our mitochondria and stimulating them in a way that makes them bigger and stronger. In the same way that... It, here, here's the best analogy to understand this and to understand what I was talking about a minute ago with why a 70-year-old, the typical 70-year-old has about 25% of the mitochondrial capacity of a 20-year-old. If you've ever broken an arm or a leg, and you wear that cast for six weeks or eight weeks, and then you go to the doctor and they take the cast off, they saw it off. If you've ever had this done and you look down at your arm or your leg after six or eight weeks of wearing this cast, you notice two things. One is that it's unusually hairy, and I have no idea why that is. But the other thing you notice, more importantly, is that it's half the size of the other arm or leg. Okay, Those muscles atrophied. From disuse to like half the size of that they were prior to that. Use it or lose it. Yeah. And that exactly. And that's just in the span of a couple months. So, what happens? In the modern lifestyle, the modern Western lifestyle, that is basically an anti-hormetic lifestyle where we're sedentary, we're in climate-controlled environments, not being exposed to heat and cold. We're not getting those xenohormetic stressors from phytochemicals. We're not engaging in these different types of exercise. We are depriving ourselves of all of these types of hormetic stress that our cells and mitochondria evolved with for millions of years. It, It is literally the same thing as wearing a cast, you're not using those tissues. So what does your body do? It goes, you know, the body's ruthlessly, mercilessly concerned with survival. And if you're not using tissues in your body, especially if they're energetically costly tissues, your body says, well, I guess we don't need these for survival, let's get rid of them. So in other words, you have to stimulate and challenge the cells and tissues of your body And organelles, mitochondria of your body. Otherwise, if you don't, they atrophy, they literally shrink and shrivel and die. And the reason that I know that this is not just a normal part of aging is because when we look at healthy 70-year-olds who are lifelong athletes and exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as young adults. They don't lose 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. So that's how we know that this is a process akin to muscle atrophy from wearing a cast. It is exactly as you said, use it or lose it. And the modern anti-hormetic or non-hormetic lifestyle causes us to literally lose our mitochondria. They shrink, they shrivel, they atrophy, and they literally die off. We have much fewer of them. So this is critically important to understand because our mitochondria are... I'm going to sort of tie things together here. Our mitochondria are involved heavily in, in responding to stressors of all types, any type of stressor from poor nutrition to sleep deprivation, to psychological stress, to environmental toxicants, to exercise, to anything. And the more of them that you have, the easier time they will have in responding to that stress. So This relates to something that I call the resilience threshold, which basically means if you have the presence of a stressor that is beyond the capacity of your mitochondria to handle that stressor and maintain homeostasis, you've exceeded their capacity to handle stress, now you get symptoms. And the primary symptom, of course, is fatigue. So think of it like, let's say you and I were together, Ben, and we look over there and there's a building on fire is it going to be easier for us to put out that fire if it's just you and me with some buckets of water or if it's you and me plus 30 other guys and girls that are coming with us and putting it out, right? The it's- more the more, the better, absolutely. Exactly. It's the exact same thing with mitochondria. So what we have is the convergence of this process of the modern lifestyle causing the atrophy and decline of our mitochondrial capacity as we're getting older, plus. The ubiquitous stress in the modern world, from all you know—sleep deprivation, psychological stress, and and environmental toxins, and poor nutrition, and being sedentary—and all these different things are now converging in a way that we've lowered our resilience threshold by not having big, strong mitochondria and lots of them, and we've got the stressors being poured on. So the combination of that is now people are exceeding their resilience threshold very easily and ending up with symptoms, disease, and of course fatigue. So the goal is twofold. Of course, you want to understand and identify and minimize the stressors in your lifestyle and environment. And you also want to build up your mitochondria bigger and stronger and build more of them through mitochondrial biogenesis through layering in different types of hormetic stressors in your life. So that's kind of the two-part strategy of uh, improving your energy levels.
0: No, it's a great explanation. That's why it makes sense when you think about The basic understanding that most people have of mitochondria is that they produce energy, ATP, I already explained that. So somebody has low energy, they would think, all right, if the mitochondria uses glucose and fatty acids, then let's just eat more energy to create more energy, right? But there's so much more to that, which is what you just explained. It's what's happening in the body, in the cells, in the surveillance system. And the number one priority for the body, the innate intelligence, is to survive, That's why when your book explains this in your work, but when you look at the cells in the human body that have the most mitochondria, it's usually the cells that are mostly used, that needed for survival. The brain, uh, what is it, 2.5 million mitochondria in a single brain cell, I believe, Ari?
1: Is that somewhere in the millions? Um, Almost every cell in the body has between hundreds to thousands. And I think brain cells, some, at least certain regions of the brain have been found to be somewhat of an exception. I don't think it's millions. And don't quote me on this. You, you could very well be right. But I think it was in the tens of thousands. So normally, it's like 500 to 3,000 mitochondria per cell. And I think there's certain cells in the brain that have like tens of thousands of mitochondria per cell.
0: You know what? I found that the, um, the ovaries, right? Ovaries, reproduction, survival, um, 100,000 mitochondria in an ovary cell. Which is oh wow, super fascinating. Yeah. When I, I remember when I was interviewing Dr. Stephanie Estima, who I think endorsed your book, right? She would yep. yeah, well, wow. and you had an mm-hmm. amazing endorsement. She shared that with me. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane and when you have the proper fats the building blocks for those cell membranes all of a sudden your fat burning hormones can do its job so you lose weight all of a sudden your cells produce energy so you feel good so we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity so i've been taking pure form Ben4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is Ben, B-E-N, and the number 4. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. It all goes back to survival. So if you're wondering why, and the person's probably wondering why, I'll ask you. If if their body is dealing with a lot of too much stress, their hormetic ceiling is very low and they're past that, So now they're losing results. Their mitochondria are now going into this wartime mode. How does that help with survival? How does limiting energy production help with survival? Is it because primarily the cost of producing energy is very high and it creates free radicals? And if you're already dealing with so much stress, the mitochondria cannot uh, keep up with what's going on?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the, the analogy I like to use is... Let's say you were in a house and you know in some I don't know like terrible inner city neighborhood and you know you were in a in a third world country where there's like a war going on and somebody threw poison gas in the street okay somebody's threw some kind of toxic gas in the street it would be a really bad idea to be in your house and like, just leave the windows open and say, you know, it'd be great to just keep, you know, let, let the fresh air in. It would be a really bad idea to open the door and go outside and say, you know, I think it looks like a nice day for a walk. So when cells are under attack, they do the same thing that nations do when they're under attack. They close the borders, they wall themselves off, and they shift all their resources towards defense normal life stops, they don't, you know, go for bike rides and walks and just enjoy their life as normal, right? If they did that, if you were, if you had poison gas in the street outside, and you left your windows open, and you went for a walk outside, you would be greatly harmed by that. So cells do this as a way to protect themselves, number one. And they do it also to as as an evolutionary adaptive mechanism to help allow for resources, the body's energy and resources to be redirected towards defending against the threat. If this sounds obscure or abstract, just think of the last time you got a cold or a flu or COVID. What was one of the classic symptoms of it? Fatigue, okay? And there's multiple, there's actually two mechanisms that we have, probably probably more that we haven't even discovered. But one is the mitochondria shifting into cell danger response. And we also have a brain mechanism when we have uh, lots of immune activation and and elevated levels of inflammatory cytokines, the brain actually responds by also creating something called sickness behavior, which is fatigue, apathy, you know, lethargy, lack of motivation, lack of desire to do much. You kind of just want to lay around, right? And and that is actually your body protecting you from over expending energy and depleting resources in a way that creates excess demand when it's already under a lot of stress. It's trying to to get you to relax so you don't spend lots of energy, expend lots of energy. And then it's shifting that energy and resources towards, let's say, attacking the pathogen, the cold, the flu, the COVID virus that has invaded your body and now the body has to activate its resources to fend this threat off. Okay. So that's that's how our body is evolutionary adapted to respond to those things. If you fall down and get severely injured, and you've got cuts and scrapes, and you've got a broken leg or a sprained ankle or something like that, your body is now producing lots of inflammatory cytokines that now your brain's gonna engage the sickness behavior and say, rest, rest. We need to direct energy and resources towards repairing these damaged tissues or fending off this threat right and that that is evolutionarily adaptive we are wired with this because it makes sense for our bodies to do this because it helps us fend off threats and it helps us repair and regenerate tissues so that we can heal faster compared to if again if we just went about life as normal and like let's say you got a cold or a flu and you went you just said no i need to go exercise i'm going to go go for my run and you know lift weights like i always do okay well you're probably going to get sicker if you do that and you're probably going to extend the duration of your sickness because you're now putting more strain on your body during a time where it's already under strain and it needs it's telling you to shut down energy production so it can redirect those resources towards healing defense regeneration does that make sense Makes total sense. Yeah. Survival, number one priority. And so let's get into how
0: light uh, circadian rhythm, you have a chapter all about circadian rhythm. So from my understanding, maybe you could correct me if you've seen differently. I believe there's only two antioxidants that could actually penetrate the mitochondrial membrane. And those two that from my research glutathione and melatonin. Are there any other antioxidants that could get into the
1: membrane? It's a good question. There, there probably are, and there's some that exist within the mitochondria. The mitochondria produces its own supply of internal antioxidants, um, and that's part of how hormetic stress results in mitochondria getting, becoming more resilient. So as you expose your body to hormetic stressors, there's an increase in reactive oxygen species or free radicals sort of the the opposite of antioxidants oxidants and you know it was thought for a really long time that these reactive oxygen species or oxidants were just these harmful guys and you know if only we could just neutralize them all with with antioxidants we'd be much better off for it in fact many years ago 10 or 15 years ago it was thought you know, well, we have, you know, hundreds, thousands of studies showing exercise has all these amazing benefits. It decreases risk of uh, obviously obesity and diabetes and, and heart disease and cancer and neurological disease and on and on and on. But the problem with exercise is that it creates this huge surge of, of oxidants, of reactive oxygen species. And if only we could just get rid of all those reactive oxygen species, we could get all the benefits of exercise without the harms. And there were several researchers, research groups all around the world that engaged in certain studies where they would use supplemental antioxidants before or after or during exercise. And almost universally, what almost all of these studies found was something very surprising. They found that using antioxidants around exercise actually canceled out most or all of the benefits of exercise. And the reason why is it turns out that those reactive oxygen species aren't just these harmful bad guys that we need to neutralize. They're actually vital signaling molecules. And basically what's going on is, you know, if you think back to that analogy that I gave a, a few minutes ago about, you know us putting out the fire of this, this building that's by us, Reactive oxygen species are signaling molecules that communicate to mitochondria. We are being taxed very heavily. We're being taxed beyond our capacity and we need help. We need to grow bigger and stronger. We need more mitochondria. So just as if you lift a weight, it's it's stimulating that muscle tissue to grow stronger in response to that, that challenge. The same thing's happening at the internal level and it's being controlled by reactive oxygen species. So it's the equivalent of us going let's say you and me run over to this building we start dumping water on the fire and we're trying to put it out and then we realize you know we're just not doing this fast enough the fire's overtaking us now we yell for help we yell to some people across in the building across the street say hey we need help you know get over here and help us put out this fire. That's basically what reactive oxygen species are doing at the mitochondrial level. They are signaling, we need help. We, we need to, to grow bigger and stronger. So th- this is a drawn out answer to your question, but it's to correct kind of some common thinking in the, in the general public uh, that's overly simplistic around oxidants and antioxidants. So in response to hormetic stressors, you get a transient increase in reactive oxygen species. But because that's acting as a signaling molecule that the mitochondria are, they're doing a couple things in response to it to adapt to that situation. Okay, just Again, just like a muscle grows stronger in response to being challenged with weight. The mitochondria grow stronger by becoming literally bigger and being capable of producing more energy as a result of being bigger by growing more mitochondria from scratch, mitochondrial biogenesis. And also by something called the ARE, the antioxidant response element, responds to a certain signaling cascade that's the result of something called the NRF2 pathway. And this antioxidant response element is our internal antioxidant defense system at the cellular level. And this produces powerful compounds like glutathione and superoxide dismutase and catalase. And that system for antioxidation, for neutralizing excessive oxidative stress, becomes bigger and stronger and more robust in response to the transient spike of reactive oxygen species from hormetic stress. So, if you follow everything I just said, basically, we want to get out of a paradigm where we think oxidants are bad and antioxidants, the more antioxidants we can dump into the system, the better. We have to understand that these oxidants are in there performing a vital signaling role all the time. But if they're out of balance, if uh, the oxidants are too great and the antioxidant system inside of our cell is too weak, then you can get oxidative damage, actual cellular damage occurring as a result of that imbalance. But what we want ideally is what's called redox balance. We want our cells to be capable of managing and maintaining and regulating the proper balance of oxidants to antioxidants. And hormetic stress and building up your mitochondria is a a critically important element of that. Having said all of that context, there are some different kinds of antioxidants that have been shown to penetrate the mitochondria to one degree or another. There's a synthetic antioxidants. It's like a synthetic version of CoQ10. That's called MitoQ, I believe, There's some negative research on it, but there's some positive research on it. I haven't put it in my formulas because I'm a little bit wary of the negative research, but it has been shown to penetrate the mitochondria. Melatonin is the most important and powerful mitochondrial antioxidant. And Wow, big statement right there. It is a huge statement. And there's actually some new knowledge coming out around that that's very important. It turns out melatonin is not only produced in the brain, and it's not only just this sort of, you know, people think about it as like a sleep. people Sometimes some people think about it as like just a sleep supplement. It's Most people do. A hormone produced yeah. by our brain. So the first thing is understand it's a hormone. The second big thing that's really new knowledge that's just coming out through the work of a researcher named Russell Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R. R-E-I-T-E-R. He's done some research on one of my areas of expertise, red and, ne- and near-infrared light therapy. And he's actually discovered something really profound just recently that I think is going to be an absolute game changer in our understanding of physiology and what, how our cells regulate oxidative stress and redox balance. And that is that it turns out that mitochondria produce their own melatonin. So melatonin isn't only produced in the brain, it's actually produced in the cells themselves by mitochondria for mitochondria. So it's not only the, the most important mitochondrial antioxidant, but it's so important that mitochondria have evolved and they're even the predecessors of mitochondria have evolved for billions of years to make their own melatonin. That's how important melatonin is for mitochondria. And they make it, this is the really crazy thing, they make it in response to red and near-infrared light exposure. So by literally exposing your body to light, you are recharging at the mitochondrial level your stores of melatonin and you're making sure that your cells, your mitochondria can maintain that redox balance, the balance of oxidants to antioxidants that I just explained. You're making sure that they can maintain that and minimize any imbalance that might occur so they prevent oxidative damage to the cells, to the mitochondria. And I, I think it's gonna turn out that melatonin is a critically important player in that, and that red and near infrared light exposure, getting adequate sunlight on your body is a critically important aspect of making, of making sure, sure, that, sure happens. that
0: happens. Yeah, amazing. I mean, you just said every cell in the human body. Specifically, the mitochondria produce melatonin. It's not just the pineal
1: gland. So, melatonin is just to be clear, I, I don't know if it's every cell in the body. Like, there are certain, like red blood cells, for example, don't even have uh, mitochondria. So, it, uh, I don't know. I, that statement might not be entirely true, but it's, it's close to true.
0: Okay, every cell that has a mitochondria in the human body (laughs) produces melatonin, that we know for sure. (laughs) Possibly every cell, but we have to verify that. So good point. In your book, you you talk about, okay, standard lighting, right? Uh, Fluorescent lights, being behind a computer screen, not going outside, not getting red light. I believe the percentage was that you lose melatonin, about 50 to 70% of the melatonin that's produced
1: is decreased from not getting enough light exposure. Share a little bit more about that. So that that figure 50 to 70% is actually the amount of melatonin suppression that you get there's there's research showing that you get 50 to 70% suppression of melatonin secretion by the brain in the evenings as a result of simply being in a typical home under standard indoor ha- home lighting. You know, most people have either fluorescent or LED home lighting. Not even talking about looking at bright TV screens or computer screens or phones or anything like that. Just standard indoor home lighting suppresses melatonin by 50 to 70%. And again, this is a hormone that is absolutely vital for protecting your mitochondria, for protecting the neurons in your brain. It has really amazing, powerful um, anti-cancer properties and so much more. It's, it's vital for protecting your cells and mitochondria from damage that would otherwise accumulate. So if you're cr- chronically suppressing that every single night when you're supposed to have a big surge of melatonin and you're also suppressing it at the the cellular level and subcellular level as a result of not getting adequate sunlight exposure now you have chronic melatonin deficiency. And what happens if you're chronically deficient in a hormone that is vital for protecting your mitochondria, vital for protecting the neurons in your brain, vital for um, preventing cancer, right? Vital for preventing the accumulation of damage in your mitochondria. What happens if you do that every night for years, for decades? You're going to accumulate a lot of of damage and a lot of consequences as a result of that. So, I, I think I think that this this melatonin story is really huge on a number of levels, and I think. <laughs> Quite frankly, I think melatonin doesn't get the respect that it deserves, if you know what I mean. like we, we don't fully appreciate how important and powerful this compound is in our bodies and all of the roles that it's playing. Um, but yeah, so we have we have basically the circadian rhythm, we have a, a central clock in the brain and we have this is somewhat recent discovery in science really in the last 20 years or so, 10, 20 years. We have peripheral clocks you know, or we have biological clocks in almost all the tissues of our bodies from our eyes to our skin, to our liver, to our intestines, to our stomach. You know, Every system of our body turns out has these peripheral clocks. So we have the central one in our brain and this one is hugely responsible for regulating sleep-wake cycles and energy levels, brain function, mood, and many other things. And it's, it's, it's regulating or heavily influencing many different neurotransmitters and hormones that are affecting basically every aspect of our health and our quality of life and our energy levels and our sleep, okay? So circadian rhythm in the central clock in the brain is vital. And the primary inputs that control it are light. That's the primary one. There's also to some extent, some other inputs that modulate it less significantly, like nutrition and like movement and temperature actually is a pretty significant one. But then we also have all of these peripheral clocks in all the other tissues of our body. And the primary inputs that are affecting those, the primary input is actually nutrition that's affecting all these peripheral clocks. And the goal that we should have is to synchronize the central clock and the peripheral clocks. We want them working together. We don't want them desynchronized, which is the state that most people are in. And there are many reasons why that happens. In animal studies, if you take animals and you, for example, feed them during the, their nighttime, time, during the, the time that they would normally be sleeping, but that's when you make food available to them. They have completely dysfunctional circadian rhythms, even if they're getting light exposure at the right times. The central clock synchronized, but it's it's not in sync with the peripheral clocks. The peripheral clocks all get synchronized to the nutrition inputs, which are occurring during the time that they're supposed to be sleeping. And then you get all kinds of negative metabolic effects. You start to see increased blood pressure, increased inf- markers of inflammation, increased insulin resistance, decreased energy levels. They start to put on fat, even if they're consuming the same amount of food Uh, that they were in the other setting where they were eating it at the appropriate time of day, they start to have all of these negative metabolic effects. Well, guess what? We're Humans are doing the same thing. We have way too much night eating occurring, way too much of our daily food is occurring during nighttime period. And probably most importantly, our feeding window, our eating window is way too long. And we know this from research from a circadian rhythm researcher named Sachin Panda, who's written a great book on the subject, but he basically had a whole bunch of people track their eating habits for a month or two, maybe longer than that, maybe a few months. And he found that most people, actually less than 10% of people ate all of their food within a 12-hour window from the first bite of food to the last bite of food. And it turns out that 85% of people had between a 13 to 16 hour eating window each day. I've noticed a lot of people have issues
0: with caffeine, especially caffeine in coffee. Now don't get me wrong, I love myself a cup of quality coffee, but the truth is I've seen so many of my Keto Camp Academy students have a glucose spike from caffeine, knocking them out of fasting, or creating some digestive issues, bloating, and most commonly, jitters and irritability. We know excessive caffeine and caffeine sensitivity can cause adrenal problems, which has a lot of negative effects. It makes you more dependent on the caffeine, and it puts you in this sympathetic fight-or-flight state. And for a lot of people, that is problematic. Everyday dose solves the problem of regular coffee while drastically building on its benefits with added supplements. What I love about everyday dose, it's low acidity, cold extracted coffee and a micro dose of caffeine blended with collagen protein, functional mushrooms, and nootropics, which will improve your focus, your energy, and your immunity. I just feel different in a really good way when I have Everyday Dose versus regular coffee, and I want you to experience the same. So if you want to check out Everyday Dose, head over to everydaydose.com slash ben and use the coupon code KETOCAMP, you're going to get an extra five-on-the-go dose travel pack to take with you anywhere you go. I take these travel packs with me, and it is a game-changer because when I'm traveling, it's hard to find, first of all, a clean cup of coffee, but almost impossible to find coffee with these functional ingredients. So head over to everydaydose.com slash KETOCAMP. Use KETOCAMP to get your bonus gift, or click the link in the podcast notes down below so pretty much every waking hour
1: close to every waking hour that we are eating yes and this is equivalent to what we have sort of at the at the light level too at the with the central clock we, due to the advent uh, the invention of artificial lighting we've now extended our daytime we we have all of this light pouring into our eyes after the sun goes down which from an evolutionary perspective shouldn't be happening so we've in other words extended the hours of daylight as a result of that, as far as our brain's circadian clock is concerned. And as far as the peripheral clocks of our body are concerned, that the, the, what we're doing with food is exactly the same thing. We've extended the hours of daytime and now we're getting way too much daytime stimulation of all these, these clocks in our body. And as a result of that, we get all kinds of negative metabolic effects. We get increased inflammation, we get mitochondrial dysfunction, we get insulin resistance, we get increased blood lipids, dysfunctional blood lipids, and dysregulation of many other hormones that are affected by the circadian rhythm. For example, um, every night while we, while we sleep, we're supposed to have a growth hormone surge, and that hormone is critically important for cellular healing and, t- and regeneration and also certain functions in in other roles like stimulating fat loss and things like that. Well, it turns out that if you have a disrupted circadian rhythm, you have suppressed growth hormone levels. We also know that people with chronic fatigue have about half of the growth hormone surge that normal healthy people have. So you know there's something going on there. We also know that when circadian rhythm is disrupted, thyroid hormones goes down. Cortisol level is also tied to circadian rhythm. So you get cortisol... Dysregulation as a result of that. You get, you know, testosterone is another hormone that's tied to circadian rhythm. So you get testosterone levels that are lower than they should be. And you get insulin resistance. So you get, and you get suppressed melatonin. So you're getting this this widespread sort of biochemical hormonal milieu that is decreasing your ability to protect your mitochondria, decreasing their ability to heal and regenerate suppressing their ability to to get energy and to make energy you know you're creating this biochemical and hormonal environment that is not conducive to health and high energy levels as a result of this circadian rhythm disruption so a few things that that we can do to optimize this and these are easy these tips you're going to give they're pretty easy to fix this problem here yeah absolutely and you talk about some of these as well so um, one is control your eating window every day. You want it somewhere between 6 to 10 hours. Shorter is not always better, particularly if you're coming from 14, 15, 16 hour eating windows. You don't want to say, well, I'm going to go to 6. Okay, Because you don't have the metabolic flexibility yet to be able to handle that. And you're probably going to experience fatigue if you try to do that too quickly.
0: Is there a certain window, uh, eating window that works better like 8 a.m.
1: to 2 p.m. versus like 12 p.m. to 6 p.m.? Yeah, that's a great question. So in general, the research supports early time-restricted eating as being superior to later. Meaning if you were going to, let's say, have an eight-hour feeding window, you want that to be earlier in the day, like let's say starting at 7 or or 8 a.m. as opposed to starting at noon or, or 1 p.m. Why do you think that is? In, in addition to calories, food is information. Food is signaling certain things to our body. So if we go for a big chunk of our day, if we start our day and we go hours and hours and hours into our day without consuming any food, our body might shift into a state where it's going, hey, I, you know, maybe we're not going to have food for a while. And maybe this is a famine you know maybe we need to hold on to fat stores maybe we need to slow down energy expenditure and slow down resting metabolic rate but more more so than that really slow, what i said before slow down energy expenditure and how do you do that lower energy levels okay so the subjective sense of energy that someone might have you decrease that the body is decreasing that in response to long periods without consuming food
0: but do you think that would happen in a 16-hour fast? Or is that more of somebody's going 32 hours, like a, a three or more days into a fast? Uh, would that be the case? But I don't know if that will happen during a 16-hour fast. Do you think that would? If they're maybe they're doing it every day and they're under eating
1: consistently, possibly? I, I think that there's going to be different individual sensitivities to it. So I think if you're talking okay. about you and me, people with really good metabolic flexibility who are fit and who are used to doing that, it's probably not going to happen to a significant degree. Or to, like I actually do think it will still happen to some degree. But I think that people who... The, the poorer health you're in, the poorer, poorer your metabolic flexibility is, and the lower fitness level you have and the lower energy levels you have to start with, the more you're going to feel that significantly. Right, The more sensitive to it your body will be as far as not having the energy inputs, the food energy inputs. It's going to say, "Oh, we don't have food energy inputs. We we don't have enough energy. Let's tone down our subjective energy levels and our subjective and our uh, energy expenditure." Whereas for you and me, you know, fit, metabolically healthy people, physically active people, that might be so subtle that you don't even notice it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I personally notice the opposite. Right when I'm fasted, I notice. You know, I feel like I have more energy, more focus. If you take a person who is not healthy and not fit. And you say, "Hey, go fast." What is, are, you know? How are they going to feel sixteen hours into it? Right? They're 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 not going to feel good.
0: They're gonna they're gonna be hurt. They'll go hypoglycemic. Yeah, totally. So you know, when when I say that, it's it's you know, I'm referring to my metabolism the work that I've done. But to your point, somebody's doing a standard American diet, eating all all day long, probably not a good idea. You want to build up to that. So continue. You you said the tip number one was to have an eating window and a fasting window.
1: Right. So another aspect of this related to the question you just asked is. There are studies where they take groups of overweight people and they give them the exact same diet controlled down to the calorie. Okay, so let's say 1,100 calorie diets, but one group consumes a big breakfast, most of the calories in breakfast and lunch and a very small dinner. And the other group does the opposite, a large dinner with a small breakfast and a small lunch same exact calories but at the end of 8 weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, almost all of those studies find that the group that ate more of the food in the morning hours ends up losing more body fat. Why? Well, they ate the same exact food, and the same exact amount of food, and the same exact total number of calories. How could that be that one group lost more body fat if losing body fat is a function of creating a caloric deficit? Well, what what's happening is By consuming more food in the morning, you're giving your body the signal that energy is abundant and that during those daylight hours, you now have higher subjective sense of energy and a higher level of NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, meaning your body expends more energy throughout the day than you would if you didn't eat as much food earlier in the day. So there's a signaling function of consuming more food earlier in the day. We also know that early time, what's called in the research ETRF as opposed to LTRF, early time restricted feeding as opposed to late time restricted feeding, results in generally speaking, decreased oxidative stress, decreased markers of inflammation, improved insulin sensitivity and other markers of overall metabolic health. So there's definitely a compelling body of evidence showing that number one, control that eating window each day you want it somewhere between 6 to 10 hours and number 2 stack more of your daily calories towards the earlier part of the day if possible and avoid night eating avoid eating a, a large amount of your food after the hours of sunset and too close to bedtime as well which will also disturb circadian rhythm and sleep and in, in, in other mechanisms those are a few of the critically important ways that we can get our peripheral clocks working well and then synchronize all these peripheral clocks in our tissues with our central clock in our brain. And as a result of doing that, you know, one of the interesting things that Sachin Panda did in that study I mentioned where he tracked people's eating and he found that you know, 85% of people are consuming uh, food in a 13 to 16 hour feeding window each day, is he actually just did uh, an intervention at the end of this after a few months where for a couple months, he had had this group of people just restrict their hours of eating. He did nothing else. He didn't modify what they were eating at all. He didn't tell them how much to eat. Nothing except lower your hours of food consumption down to about 11 hours per day, which is still not even in the optimal range as I would consider it.
0: And they could eat as frequent as they want, but they just the total amount of time
1: was lowered. Exactly. Still eat whatever you want, whenever you want, however much you want. And just from that one recommendation, he showed that people slept better, they reduced oxidative stress, they improved body composition, they lost weight, and they increased their energy levels just from that one thing. So, you know, th- these are minor tweaks that you can make that really don't take that much effort. And in fact, you know, maybe even save you some effort because you, maybe you end up eating less meals, so you have to prepare fewer meals each day. Yeah, and and save money because you don't have to spend more
0: money on meals too. It's exactly. like a win-win. I remember one of my colleagues, his name is Dr. Don Klum. He did a similar study to Sasha and Panda, probably not as controlled, but he, he did a patient population survey on all of his patients. Uh, there was a few hundred and he wanted them to write down every time they had a meal or a snack, anytime they raised glucose and insulin from food. And they did this for 30 days, hundreds of, of patients, and the average person in this study was eating 17 to 23 times per day, which is excessive. They didn't calculate how big the window was, probably very similar to Sasha's study, but 17 to 23 times per day, they're, in, they're putting something in their body that raises glucose and insulin, starts the digestive process. It's, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what's what's also interesting about that is if you ask those same people how often they eat per day, they might say, oh, you know, four or five, maybe six times a day. So people are uh, largely not conscious of how often they're eating. And so that, that's, a, that's a really important element. There's a number of studies that have found that people just aren't even aware of it unless they actually track it. That's right. Yeah. Think about like drinking kombucha, eating
0: almonds, biting a piece of that protein bar, the yogurt. I mean, it all adds up. And if you're not tracking it, you're not aware of it. So that's a super tip for those listening and watching. Like if there's one thing you do from this episode, get some light exposure. Uh, Morning light is best. You talk about that. And then have an eating window and a fasting window. And if you can make uh, the cutoff time, maybe if you go to bed at 10 p.m., the cutoff time with your last meal, last bite of food being 6 p.m., Just doing that out of this conversation, you're going to get your body on the right track. And then you could do the hormetic stressors and read the book and follow all those principles. But that one tip, it's free. It will make a big difference in all those areas that you mentioned. It's a power tip. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called Good Idea and it is a great idea if you're trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying, and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. The last thing I want to talk about, uh the mitochondria, right? I have a question regarding the half-life of the mitochondria. What do you think for the average American? Maybe there's no research to verify this, but your like hypothesis. What do you think the half-life is for the
1: mitochondria uh in an average American adult? I actually have no idea. <laughs> I won't even I won't even uh, <laughs> take a stab at answering that. I have absolutely no idea.
0: <laughs> what do you think it would be? I mean, I would guess like I asked Dr. Gundry this question. He he said like two weeks to three weeks, his guess, because he thinks we're constantly destroying them and the regenerate the apoptosis that's occurring. But he also said, by the way, if you have a healthy body
1: and you're doing all the things right, your mitochondria could live forever. Do you also think that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I I've never even really read much, much research on that topic. Um, so I wouldn't even know where to begin my my speculation around it. You know, there's cells in our body that regenerate like for example cells in the gut lining regenerate every like 3 to 5 days and there's other cells in our body like neurons that take more like 6 months for those cells to turn over so you know there's there's such huge variation i think it's uh, it would be probably impossible to create it, it's probably it varies hugely between different tissues so um it might be weeks in some cases. It might be years or decades in other cases.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What's the, what are your thoughts on organic acid testing to look at mitochondrial
1: function? Like how much how much value do you put in those sort of tests? I think it's one data point that can be useful in a in a certain context, but I'm not overwhelmed by it by any means. In a broader picture, like as one data point that you're pairing with everything else, the person's symptoms the person's blood markers you you can gain some insight into that and there are certain things that you know if certain organic acids are really off the charts that can indicate certain problems of course but as a sort of general indicator of mitochondrial function so so Okay.
0: Yeah. That's my thoughts on it as well. Your book comes out on May 10th. This episode is being released if you're listening or watching on the day of the release, May 9th. So go pre-order it. Where's the best place to get your book, Ari?
1: Yeah. Whatever bookstore you want. So uh, obviously, Amazon is probably the most popular one and it will be available there for for pre-order. And uh, the other thing I'll mention is if people want to email us the receipt. Uh, you can do that at Ari at theenergyblueprint.com. We have some amazing free gifts for you, including some a couple of free courses that are normally two hundred dollars. So we're gonna we're gonna throw that in for anybody who goes and purchases the book. That's an awesome deal. Thank you for doing that. So Rachel, our podcast notes is
0: going to put that all of your resources, including your email down below and your website. And you also developed a product, right? If you're, you're thinking, okay, what are the best? Because we only scratched the surface. We could talk for hours about this. The book deep dives into it, but you actually developed a product with the research you've done with the right nutrients, antioxidants to help protect the mitochondria with in combination of actually doing the work. So share a little bit about that product you developed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually a few, um, and I have two more on the way, a, a sleep formula and, and a longevity formula.
0: Is there melatonin? Is there melatonin in the sleep
1: one? Uh, a, a very small amount. Okay. okay. So, um, sorry, quick digression because I can't resist. I've kind of discovered something somewhat interesting that there's almost no, nobody talking about. I, I can't really find much talk of this online, but I've discovered it in myself and in my father so i think there's a genetic component to it and i've done polls with my audience about this to sort of verify it but basically i i happen to be hypersensitive to melatonin if i take it in supplement form even small amounts of it really disturb my sleep and make me feel horrific the next morning like can't like a level of grogginess that i makes it so my brain can't function my body feels heavy it's really hard to move uh, are you also yeah. sensitive to caffeine um i used to be somewhat sensitive to to caffeine from coffee in particular it used to give me anxiety and jitters but this this is very different i'm not sensitive to most things i would say in general but melatonin i'm hypersensitive to and my father is too he's in he's in good health he's in his 70s now but over, overall, in very good metabolic health. So I've done polls with my audience as well. And I found about 20-25% of people are hypersensitive to melatonin. Some people can handle 10-20 milligrams, 30 milligram dosage. There's research showing benefits with even higher doses than that. And there's other people who can't even tolerate a baby dose of melatonin. And I'm one of those people that happens to be... Uh, hypersensitive to it. So I've put melatonin in the formula, but it's a micro dose of melatonin. It's 0.3 milligrams, which sounds like a small dose compared to a lot of the 3 milligram, 5 milligram, 10 milligram doses that you see commonly in supplements. But 0.3 milligrams is actually the physiological dose. That's how much our brain produces each night, roughly. So it's an appropriate dose and it's small enough that it won't disturb the the people who are hypersensitive to it. And if somebody wants to take a bigger dose, they can always add more melatonin. You know, if they want to take three milligrams, five milligrams, twenty milligrams, whatever, they can still do that. But it's a small enough dose that you get significant benefits, but without risking the hypersensitivity reactions.
0: I've seen that too with a, a percentage. I, I'll connect you with Dr. John Lawrence, who's the you know, yeah. he studied with Russell Ryder as well. So he knows his work very well. He, he'll know the answer. I also know that something that I learned using my CGM, and, and sometimes I would eat too close to bed, right, which I don't normally do. But I always notice that my glucose overnight stays elevated when I, whenever I eat close to bed. And what turns out, and I forget the exact receptor site, MT something. There's a specific receptor site in the beta cells that's responsible for producing insulin. And it has an inverse relationship with melatonin, right? So I would take melatonin, eat before bed, not commonly, but I would take melatonin and I had excess glucose, melatonin, and I was not able to produce enough insulin. So it was showing high glucose overnight. When I didn't take the melatonin, glucose dropped back down, which was interesting. But but I've also done the super physiological, over, uh, not overdose, but doses of melatonin suppository, 200 milligrams, 300 milligrams. I haven't seen any research that shows exogenous melatonin shuts down endogenous. From my understanding, there's no negative feedback loop. Is
1: that what you've seen as well? Technically speaking, based on the evidence, yes. However, there's something going on there. So there are studies that have tested this and they found that basically no, taking exogenous melatonin doesn't shut down your internal production. Even if you take large doses, we still measured it in these people, they're still producing melatonin. However, something is happening. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. I'm, I would say 99.9% certain. And the reason is, I think almost invariably, people who take melatonin for a significant length of time, whether it's days or weeks, the night or several nights or sometimes several weeks that you come off of it, you sleep poorly. And like horrifically bad. And then it takes at least at least a few days, sometimes longer, and some people who have been on melatonin for a longer period of time, for their sleep to normalize and for them to be able to sleep decently without taking melatonin. So there's something happening there, and the the symptomology of what's happening, what I just described, is really what you would expect if there were a negative feedback loop, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, it's 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 kind of like a you know, how can you say either way? The symptomology suggests there is some kind of negative feedback loop, but the study says no. Melatonin production is not suppressed. My interpretation of that is maybe there is another mechanism that there's a negative feedback loop, like the the cells become. The melatonin receptors. There's some kind of adaptation that takes place there that makes it so they now require a larger amount of melatonin present for them to activate those mechanisms. I, I don't know, but there's something going on there.
0: Yeah, you know, just intuitively, even though I, I feel like taking exogenous melatonin from a quality brand is uh, beneficial, not so much for sleep, but for all the other reasons you mentioned even knowing all the benefits of it and knowing that it really can't cause much harm, I still do it cyclically. It just makes sense to me, just from my intuition to, uh, from taking something exogenous, which is technically a hormone to do it cyclically. So thankfully I've never experienced the sleep issues with it, but I also do it cyclically and I do the suppository, which is more of a slow release that kind of pulls into my uh, cells. But anyways, you were, you were finishing your, um,
1: Thoughts on your your supplements? You have a sleep one coming out. What else do you have? So, uh, longevity formula. And then, my main, my best selling formula is Energenesis, which is uh, my mitochondrial energy formula. And then, I have another uh, killer brain supplement called Ultra Brain, which is a phenomenal formula. And then, I have a a really premium multivitamin, multimineral formula with a bunch of superfoods in it. And, you know, simple things like that make a big difference. You know, I'll, I'll give you a few examples here. There's research in women with chronic fatigue syndrome showing that just becoming sufficient in essential vitamins and minerals by taking a premium multivitamin and mineral formula led to a 32% reduction in their fatigue scores in eight weeks and a 39% increase in sleep quality in two months just from taking that formula because, because these deficiencies are incredibly common. So um almost everybody has at least a few deficiencies in these different vitamins and minerals so it's critical you know there's all these people who say well you should get those things from food except when you analyze most diet plans those diet plans are deficient in many different vitamins and minerals well the crops are deficient yeah exactly so we know that the way modern farming is that fruits and vegetables themselves have much lower quantities of many different minerals than they than they used to and than they should have. So that's a factor that, you know, that's a simple thing that you can do that can make a big difference for you. There are studies with acetyl L-carnitine in older adults showing 40 to 60% improvements in mental and physical energy levels within a few months of using it. There are studies with rhodiola rosea showing it, it cuts fatigue scores in half. In other words, doubles your energy levels uh, in the span of four or, or six or eight weeks in many different studies. There are studies on... I know you wanted to talk about astaxanthin. Astaxanthin is another one that, that actually is an antioxidant that penetrates... The chemical structure of it's very interesting. It actually embeds itself across mitochondrial membranes and stabilizes mitochondrial membranes and helps protect protect them from damage. Also acts as kind of an internal sunscreen that protects the skin from UV damage. This is the, the same carotenoid that accumulates up the food chain. This is what gives salmon their pink color. It's what gives flamingos their pink color. And it accumulates in our body too, where it has many different beneficial effects on skin health, mitochondrial health, and energy sports performance recovery from exercise and and stabilizing mitochondrial membranes
0: that's how you're able to surf for three hours a day and not get burned Are Exactly. Right? exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah for 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 sure that's a big factor there's another compound called i'll just mention a couple more nt factor which is a phospholipid f- supplement that actually helps replace damaged phospholipids in mitochondrial membranes and there's at least Maybe a dozen studies on NT factor. There's a great paper by a researcher named Garth Nicholson talking about lipid replacement therapy, if somebody's interested in looking it up. They've done studies with this phospholipid formulation in people with chronic fatigue syndrome and people with chronic fatigue from aging and in, in obesity related chronic fatigue and many other different kinds of chronic fatigue. And they show 30, 40, 50% improvements in energy levels in four to eight weeks. So you know there there are things that you can do that have absolutely profound benefits uh, for your energy levels that most people just aren't aware of. You you definitely don't want to be resorting to just stimulants and caffeine. There are ways of building your energy at the at the cellular level, actually not not just giving a, a transient boost that then you're going to crash after and you're going to experience negative effects from in the long term, but actually doing things the right way, building up your energy levels at the cellular level so that you have more and more energy and you have sustainable energy. So that's really what what I focus on and what my formulas focus on. Awesome. We're going to put your website down below. Just re- say the website out loud. Theenergyblueprint.com.
0: Theenergyblueprint.com. You also have the Energy Blueprint podcast and YouTube channel. I was uh, grateful to be a guest on there. We'll link to that as well. Go buy Ari's book, go buy his previous books. We'll put links for all of that down below and share this with a friend. Uh, This is such an important conversation. So please share it with somebody, just copy and paste the link in a text message and say, hey, I think you'd like this conversation. Ari, thank you, brother, for the work that you're doing. I I love when you put out new information because I just look forward to it, just like your new book that I just read. So thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I can't wait to do a round
1: two conversation with you in the future. Thanks so much, brother. It was an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you as usual.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I told you we're going to geek out. And if you're a nerd like us, you love this conversation. You might want to listen to it a few more times. Definitely go get his book, Eat for Energy. We'll drop a link down below. Check out his website, his social media. We'll drop all that down below as well. And please share this with somebody you know. Maybe you know somebody who has chronic fatigue and they're just not feeling right. We fix their mitochondria. We fix their life. And his book and this episode is all about that. So please share it with somebody you know please consider leaving it a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. We will also drop detailed podcast notes and everything mentioned can be found down below. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'll see you on the next one.